I've been going through the book of Corinthians on um, uh, through the eyes of radical Christianity. And today we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, last week, we or last time I spoke, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 6. We were looking at a lot of addictions and sexual sins and um, the way that God expects us to be pure and walk through that. The Apostle Paul in chapter 7 um, gets pastoral again and gets more into some of these practical things. And I think there's some great stuff here for radical Christianity that sometimes can get ignored. And so I encourage us all to uh, take a look at that. So let's start with a word of prayer and, um, and ask God to illuminate his word um, as we looked at some of these, these difficult teachings. Um, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, O God, for the mercy you have in our life, and we thank you for the word. They're here, this letter written to a little church uh, in Greece almost 2,000 years ago can be just as pertinent and just as real and just as alive or more for us today. And so, God, I just pray that you would illuminate your word, let my words fall to the ground, and your words be lifted up as we look through this chapter, and what you have to say about marriage, about singleness, about divorce and remarriage, and those types of things that comes in in this chapter. And you be glorified through all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, beginning at verse 1. So, we, as we look through the book of Corinthians, we know that there's a lot of times that that is very clear that he's addressing a letter that was already written to him. So, you know, here he's responding to it. This, this chapter in particular is very important that we look for those markers. When he says, now I'm going to start talking about what you asked me here, and now I'm going to talk about what you asked me there. This chapter, he does it more than any. And so it's, it really helps us to flow through the, the reading of this scripture um, and to see how it, how it works. Because... This scripture has been, this chapter has been misused a lot, uh, and, and actually in many ways to defend different views of divorce remarriage. And I think if we allow those markers to be there and keep with the ancient interpretation of it, I think it'll help us. But let's just dive right in and see where he starts this. Remember, we just came out of chapter six, where he's getting onto some what appears to be some of the people in the church had literally gone to prostitutes and that lust and pornography and those sort of things that they were, were into, he was exhorting them very strongly in chapter 6. Now we're going to get to chapter 7, and he's going to um, cap off some of that. So verse 1. Now concerning the things which you wrote to me. So here it is, very clearly, he's now in a chapter change, and, and we're getting to something. And he makes this statement. I want us to just park on this just a minute and ponder it. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, for the sake of a mixed audience, I'm going to tend, I'm going to err through the side of discretion through this whole chapter. Um, so bear with me on that. But I think you'll get the message uh, nevertheless. But um, anyway, the, the thing that I want to get in here is this verse, this verse 1. He starts off saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. 
Now, when you look at both uh, ancient commentaries and, new com- and newer commentaries, it's hard to know, is he quoting? Now to the stuff you wrote me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Is this the quote that Corinth asked Paul, and he's quoting it? Or is this Paul now starting with his statement? Now the stuff you wrote me about. Hey, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's, it's hard to tell. And, it, and it's, uh, there's, there's a couple of these things where you read through this chapter. I, I don't know how we could have definitive answer to that. But one thing I do notice in there is whether or not he's quoting what the Corinthians wrote to him, and he's just quoting it, or it's him himself making this as a proclamation, he doesn't negate this statement. And I think this is important to look at. He doesn't say, no, that's, uh, on the other hand, he just says, nevertheless, or but, uh, and it's, a, it's a very ambiguous word, it's day uh, in the Greek. It can be used but, moreover, nevertheless. Um, and he's making this statement not to just detract from this, but to um, go on with this idea that may be so, or this is true, or he's stating it very emphatically. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. I, again, this whole theme of, of this is, of this Corinthian studies is on radical Christianity. I'll say this from my experience. There's, there's something good about having some discretion, some, um, I don't know, uh, a, um, a healthy distance between the sexes, between man and woman, and not in a weird way. Um, I, we see Jesus very plainly not being, you know, um, acting like, you know, when when, when the uh, uh, people are, are touching him or, uh, what's his name, the, uh, um, when, you know, when the woman is was washing his feet with with her tears and this kind of a thing, we don't see Jesus rebuking or running away from that, and so it's not like in an overly prudish way. I don't see, but on the other hand, we see a kind of safe um, propriety, a safe uh, um, distance there that through the apostles and through this this time period that I think is healthy, and I take this the fact that he didn't negate this as something that I think that should should counsel us. Again, not in a weird way that we stop shaking hands or whatever, this type of a thing. I'm not trying to, to impose any of those kind of a weird standards, but just some carefulness. You know, as I've been through radical Christianity in the last 30 years, and I've also watched Christianity in general, it is astounding in so many circles how when this goes... When um, uh, there's been a lot of failures, and not just in the evangelical world or the Catholic world or this, the other, but but in radical Christianity also, and I think it's it's good for us to be careful with this. I think it's good for us. You know, I I remember uh, hearing the story about Billy Graham, and some people laugh at this and talk about how Billy Graham was incredibly serious about this. He had a rule that he would never be in an elevator with a woman alone. And so they, he would make sure, just because the entire ministry could be spoken against, if one accusation would, would come to him. Billy Graham was very careful about that. Nowadays, people are almost scoffing about that. Do you, I don't know if you've caught this, but like after Joshua Harris you know, had his apostasy and, and started repenting, of, he said from his uh, Kiss Dating Goodbye book and all that, 
it's almost described, well not almost, it's emphatically described this concept of the purity culture in the pejorative, in a, in a, in a sort of an insulting kind of a way. Oh, that was the purity culture of the 90s and the 80s, and that was a real mistake Christianity went through. We're so glad we're not there now. And, and I don't know, I, I, um, I get a little concerned by the, the concept of looking at that as the mistake uh, that and Joshua Harris is trying to claim that by having these purity standards, they didn't get to know each other well enough or something. I don't buy it. And I'm just saying, again, I'm not trying to in any way impose any kind of prudish standards for us, but just a carefulness um, that as we as men and as women and we have close church and all these types of a thing, it's just a, I consider it a healthy understanding there. I see in this passage the answer to the question about hands-on or hands-off dating practices. Um, in my opinion, let me be the old guy who speaks here, is that, uh, that we have the statement, and particularly in the context of things going on further, that he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And whether that's the Corinthians saying that or him saying that, he seems to stand behind the statement, not in a prudish way, but in a way that would say that if you're if you're if you're letting your guard down in this way, it seems like it would be a dangerous thing. And it doesn't go along with the the purity that I see being um, discussed through the rest of this chapter. And look how he ties it to the next passage. Nevertheless. Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Notice he talks, he, he, he attaches the touching of women and all this with pornea. The word immorality there in the Greek is the word pornea. And so there's just something to this. Now, we also live in a time where well, now we have a lot of opportunities to be alone with a woman, even visually, with a lot of our media that um, makes me think of a ways that we can apply the scripture. Years ago, I was at a um, at a Hasidic Jewish community in in, in um, uh, the Manhattan, New York uh, Jews there, and it was just when we started dealing with internet and all those types of a thing. And I remember asking those. Those guys, how do you, what do you all do with, with, with your internet and with media in this world? It was interesting what one of them said. He said, we have this policy that we are never alone with a woman, either in real life or on the internet. <laughs> and so he said, so when we're on the internet, we have the internet here, you know, but we always make sure there's someone there with him with the internet. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, Again, I'm not trying to put that as a standard for us all here today, but the point is that there's a carefulness to this, that we know that sexual immorality is something that is just crazy through the churches today, including through radical churches. And so I look at this kind of, of um, carefulness that Paul ta- starts off here uh, and says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. I think it would, be, we should, it would do us some good to not to... Um, just discount that too quickly. There's some talk about, you know, the, the greeting, the kiss, the, the holy greeting. You know, should that be for man or for woman? I, I, I think it's a good idea to keep it just for men, for men and women, for women. 
Um, I think that some of those those things are just healthy and good for us and would fall into the spirit of us being careful here with 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So that's the way he starts this off, and it's an interesting thing. Remember, the context is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where some really bad stuff has happened. Now he changes the, he gets a little more prickly, and he starts going into the marriage relationship between the men and women, maybe something particular that happened there in Corinth, and he touches on that. Let's look at it for the next verse. Verse 3. This is powerful stuff. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. I like this this idea. Uh, I was looking up some of the ancient commentaries, and Chrysostom makes a big point, do her, like it's a debt. It's you owe her that debt. And it's interesting he made a big point about that in the Greek, of, of this debt that we owe, of this affection that we are supposed to give to our wife. And this whole thing um, of, of this... This giving affection, this this goodwill benevolence, it, it seems to have some, you know, uh, in the intimate uh, quarters of the man and wife, seems to be the obvious context that's there. But I think it goes even more to that. And I want to park on that just a little bit and talk about that, that aspect of loving our wives and wives loving their husband. Love and hate. You know, I don't believe that God created evil. I don't. I think evil is the lack of good. Hate is the lack of love. And, you know, and love is one of those really hard things to quantify or to qualify. It's hard to say, you know, what is love? But you know what? One way that you can qualify or quantify the love you have for your spouse is that feeling you have when you don't have it. That feeling you have when you don't have it. Um, love is, again, we can call it all the different things, go through the different names of the agape love and filial love and all that kind of thing. But you know that feeling when you're in a disagreement? I don't know, maybe some of you that, that don't understand that. But if they, the, that idea that when you're, when you're angry or that, that yucky, mad, recoiling, I don't want to touch you, you make me sick, you're ugly kind of feelings that we have is hate. And that feeling, that recoiling, that bad stuff is the absence of love, the absence of love. And what I see in here is that he's telling us that this part of active love for your spouse um, back and forth is something that is supposed to to cure and, and take us through this. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also wife to her husband. This idea of back and forth, guys, of that our wife is due affection to us, and yet our affection due to our wife is really radical by standards of this age. Um, Chrysostom mentioning on this passage, he says, the husband has no power over his own body, neither the wife. There is greater, there is great equality of honor and no prerogative. And so by ancient standards, this idea that our bodies 
belong to our wife is huge. And why Paul is making a big deal about this is because when you were going out there, chapter 6, and messing with those prostitutes or, or getting involved with that pornography and all that thing, your eyes and your spirit and your feeling and your body belongs to your wife. And it's not right for you. You have no right to indulge in looking or or particularly satisfying yourself in these different ways. And so this is the this is the weight that that um, that Paul is putting on this. And that's radical. It was common to be speaking of women being owned by their husband in this time period. And he says that, too. But he's flipping it and saying, guys, your body is not your own. It's your wives. And he goes on now to, to give this. This, this balanced and beautiful view of both the man and the wife in verse 4. Let's look at it. It's really, really powerful stuff. Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. That's huge. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so... If you can just let your mind ponder through that and all of the dealings you have with man and wife, that phrase alone is huge. And then he goes on, he gets kind of personal. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. The one thing that I'm impressed with this chapter, I get an insight into the Apostle Paul's pastoring. You'll see him through this chapter on several of these things, particularly dealing with celibacy. He keeps saying, now the best thing would be like me. I'm celibate. I'm completely, I don't even have a wife at least a wife anymore or whatever, I'm completely celibate, and I think that's the highest standard. And we're going to get to this in this chapter. But he understands the different callings and the different things that people have, and he's really serious that you walk in that calling. He's really serious about it. And he has some really actually strong words in reference to this. And so, But, but look at this. Do not deprive one another except with content, consent for a time. Chrysostom says this, and I'm going to warn you, as I, as I read this little blurb, I think it's overstated. <laughs> but I want you to read, it's interesting, what was the, the, uh, the standards of man and women and that type of a thing 1,500 years ago? And so it's interesting just to hear a commentary that's ancient. And here's what he says about this statement. He says, what, what then can this mean? Let not the wife say he, says he, Exercise countenance, abstinence, if the husband be unwilling, nor yet the husband without the wife's consent. Why? Why is this? And he goes on. And listen, let it go deep. Why? Because great evils spring from this sort of abstinence. For adulteries and fornications and the ruin of families have often arisen from hence. For if when men have their own wives they commit fornication, how much if they defraud them of this consolation? And more he goes on to that and then he comes back in and he says, And we'll say he, 
And well says he, defraud not, fraud here, and debt above, that he might show the strictness of the right of dominion in question. So again, this whole concept of defrauding not, he's really hitting the point of ownership. Watch it now. For that one should practice countenance against the will of the other is defrauding, but not so with the other's consent. Any more than I count myself defrauded after persuading me to take anything away from mine. Since only he defrauds who takes against another's will and by force, a thing which many women do, working sin rather than righteousness, and thereby becoming accountable for their husband's uncleanliness, and render all asunder, whereas they should value concord above all thing, since this is more important than all besides." Again, I think it's a little overstated, but I don't want you to get lose his point. He brings it into a practical thing. Again, this is still Chrysostom. He says, we will, if you please, consider it in with a view of an actual case. Thus, suppose a wife and husband, and let the wife be continent, uh, abstinent, abstaining, with consent, uh, without the consent of her husband. Well then, if hereupon he commits fornication, or through abstaining from fornication, fret and grow restless and be heated and quarreled and give all kinds of trouble to his wife, well, where is the gain of the fasting and the countenance? A breach being made in love, there is none. For what strange reproaches, how much trouble, how great a war must, of course, arise, since when in a house man and wife are at variance, the house will be no better off than a ship in a storm when the master is upon ill terms with the man at the head. Wherefore, he says, defraud not one another unless it be by consent for a season that you may give yourself unto prayer. Now, again, I think he overstates the fault here, but nevertheless, don't let the, the point go the idea that he really is valuing is the peace in the home. He goes on in another play. He said, you know, this is given yourself to prayer, not just general prayer, but there should be times when we as a family are given ourselves to deep prayer. And this is important here. And he, and, he, and he makes this qualification. Now, men, let me encourage you. You might read that and say, yeah. And the, the tendency for the man is to think then you've got some kind of right and you can force this. But guess what? Your body is not your own. You are sinfully wrong by forcing. You are robbing your right to your own body, which belongs to her. In pornography, you are robbing from your wife the right that belongs to you. In any self-gratification, you are robbing from your wife, the right that belongs to her. Your body belongs to her. Let me just say, um, <laughs> marriage requires a death on both parts for there to be peace. You die to yourself. If you're going to somehow think, I'll do this if she does that, or if, if the girl says, I'll do this if she does that, and you think that's going to somehow... It's disaster. The only way that you can have this is, is for both of you to die. If this is going to be a true Christian marriage. Um, I, I, the, the idea is, is, is so 
important. Uh, one of my favorite passages that looks at this is in Colossians 3.19. In Colossians 3.19, we come to the passage where in 18 he says that women should submit to their wives. Women should submit to their husband as unto the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. And then in 3.19 he says this, and I want you to catch something here. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter towards them. <laughs> you know what I love about that passage in all this context here? It's so earthy. It's like, oh, Paul, I mean, come on. We're spirit-filled. You know, why would I be bitter? Because he knows how it is. He knows how it is. Um, and this idea that this tendency, this, this, this thing of bitterness, and you know what that is? <laughs> That's the absence of love. And you feel that madness. I mean, I know maybe you all can't relate to it, but if you feel that that meanness, that anger, that I don't want to touch you, I think you're ugly, I, you're, you make me sick. <laughs> that feeling is the absence of love. That's bitterness. With Paul is telling the Colossians, don't go there. Love them. And that is beautiful. It's hard to do that. Um, I've been married for 34 years now <laughs> to a wonderful woman. And, and I'm not one of those, we're not one of those that got married um, and never had a problem. Matter of fact, I was sitting at a couple's night once. I was sitting next to David Brousseau, and this, this young, this, this Mennonite man stood up, and he stood up. He said, we've been married for, I don't know what he said, five years, ten years or something. He said, we've never had a single fight. And uh, David just starts cracking up and laughing next to me. I said, Shh, quiet. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, we've never fought once and everything like this. And he's laughing and laughing. I said, quiet, you're going to, you know. And so uh, finally, I, afterwards, they were so, so I was talking to him. I said, so what's so funny? He goes, we didn't get out of the, out of the, out of our, our wedding without a fight. <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you about their, their quarrel later. But um, it, it's, it's a work. And it's been a work, but it's been a beautiful work for Tanya and I. And I will say this. This spirit of forgiveness, and I'm thankful my wife is a very forgiving woman, the spirit of actively loving, conquering hate has been so powerful in our, in our marriage. And I will say we have a wonderful marriage. Um, uh, through 34 years, we're best friends, we enjoy talking, um, and that's taken an active work for us. And I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Um, and, and, and Ephesians chapter 5, he says this um, in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Notice, notice how many times when he tells women to submit to their husband, he makes sure he says submit to your own husband. To the side. Anyway, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, husbands, husbands love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for, for her. You know, this is, this is not popular uh, in women's teachings and different things like this. Neither one of those, well, maybe the men part is, but anyway, neither one of those are, are popular um, but they're good. And they, notice they both require this death. And Paul's getting to this in 1 Corinthians 7. I love the Titus too. You know, we love having women, women speakers. And 
what does the scripture say a woman can teach about? It says in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 3 and 5, it says, The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. And listen to what they're supposed to teach. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. It's, it's interesting, you kind of get into the spirit of what church life was like in the early church to see these teachings of older women saying, yeah, I know what it's like to be angry with your husband. I get it. Love your husbands through this. And there's just something powerful about this kind of a stuff. Now, men, I want to say this. This is, again, this whole series is to radical Christianity. I'm a big believer in extreme ownership. One of my favorite uh, air, airport books I ever picked up at an airport was um, Jocko's Extreme Ownership Book. I don't know if you've ever read it. And it's a great book. He's a, a Navy SEAL, and he talks about you know taking the fall, being a man that you take ownership for the things that you're responsible for. Let me say something. Guys, everything, everything that happens in your home is your fault. Everything. Everything your wife does, everything your children does is completely, and it comes down to it, it is your fault. You'll say, yeah, you don't know my wife. I, it doesn't matter. Um, you don't know my kid. The, the point is, is that, you know, many times with my wife, when I've said, you know, hey, she's being a rebel, I mean, hypothetically. Okay. So, you know, so, you know, this is happening here. I, if you If you step back big enough, I'll usually say, you know what, I put my poor wife in a box and I've shaken that box so many times and then I open it up and there's a bunch of broken pieces and I'm wondering why she's a mess. Okay? So, guys, a godly home, a home where if I see a problem in any of my children, it's in me. If I see it in my wife, it's me. And yes, there's a, there's, a, there's a responsibility, wives to the husband, husband to the wives. At the end of the day, if the buck has to stop somewhere, guys, it's your fault. It's my fault. And we have to get on with this. Because look where Ephesians, and I'll get back to, to Corinthians in a second. Watch how Ephesians takes it. Again, women submit to their husband as unto the Lord in everything. But then he just hits on the men. First Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Are you doing that, men? Next time you complain about your wives, are you washing her by the water of the word that he might present her to her, himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is back to Corinthians 7. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of the body of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. This is the word in Greek, mysterium. It's where we get the Latin equivalent of sacrament. This is a sacrament. This holy home that you are bringing up to the Lord, your wife, the purity that your body is not your own, this, this concept is a sacrament unto God. 
Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is so powerful. There's so much into this. Um, Now, all that said, all that gushy stuff said, so Paul, can a man or woman even be complete without getting married? And now this is something that we radical Christians uh, I think can, can learn something from. In other words, can you be complete single or does it take having this, this whole beautiful back and forth thing to really, really connect with God? And he makes it clear on this in verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am. He's single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion and New King James. So this idea that he still keeps, and you're going to see it a couple times through here, 1 Corinthians 7, keeps lifting up the single life. Now, in the whole years that I've been through either Anabaptist churches, kingdom churches, any kind of radical churches, I mean, it's almost like unless you're married, you know, you're not a complete, you're not a complete, you know, um, I mean, some of the circles I've been in, it was like, you know, almost almost wrong to do that, uh, to, to be single. And he's wanting, and I'm, he's going to come back to this in a minute, again, is to be lifting this up. And so here, it's also something that's important to understand with our view of divorce and marriage, which he's about to hit, that the life of celibacy and singleness is packed into the New Covenant, packed into ancient and radical Christianity. And to think, well, no one can survive without you know, being married like that. The, the Scriptures are not giving us that. And, and the Scriptures make it seem like that the calling for singleness should be much more expected than we, than we are. In 1 Timothy 5.9, remember the, the widow, if she's, uh, unless she's young, he says you should go ahead and get married because I'm worried about you. you're going to get married again. Don't make a vow of celibacy to be a widow. And that, and that the, the, the widow, if she can only be on the, the order of widows, if she was married only once. So lifting up this view of celibacy and singleness is 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 important thing to understand the piety of the Bible and the piety of, of early Christianity. All right. Next section, and it's very clear, a next section. Verse 10. Watch how he has the marker. Now to the married. So he had the first thing, the thing you wrote me about, now to the married. I command, yet not I, verse 10, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband is not to divorce his wife. This is a really important verse in the Bible for a few reasons. Number one, it unpacks the theology of the Apostle Paul, that the Apostle Paul is building upon the teachings and commands of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I'm about to teach you something, but we get a little, we get a little, a little glimpse on this one. Wait, wait, it's not me. This is the Lord. This is the Lord speaking about this. And then later he makes some applications based upon these things of the Lord. So he says, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart or to divorce her husband. But even if she does depart, let her, she has two choices. Remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. 
And a husband is not to divorce his wife. This Christocentric teaching is really important. So what are those teachings of Jesus? What are those teachings of Jesus? Let's look at them because they're pretty radical. They're pretty radical. Let's look at them. When we look at the teachings of Jesus on divorce, and this isn't an entire sermon on divorce. I'm not going to get into any of the the details or the nuances. uh, But I just want to hit the basics and I want you to get it. But to to, to really understand Jesus' teachings on divorce, it'll help you to understand two things. Or one thing that has two different things. uh, The teaching of divorce and remarriage is that Jesus teaches as two different problems. Both divorce and remarriage are wrong. But only one of them has an exception clause. So it's a sin to divorce. I want you to separate that in your mind. And it's a sin to get remarried. One of them, we have an exception clause that allows us to, he allows for an extreme circumstance for us to be separated. The other one, he does not, and that is remarriage. And so these are the things you have to distinguish when you start to look at the teachings of Jesus. And if you get that in your mind, it kind of turns a light bulb on when you start reading the scriptures on, on divorce and remarriage. Let me take you through them and show you what I mean. So under extreme circumstances, Jesus allows for separation, but he does not allow for remarriage under any circumstances, as long, at least, as your spouse is living. So let's go to Matthew 5.31. What's Paul saying when he says, not I, but the Lord? 5.31. Furthermore, it has been said, this is uh, Matthew 5.31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Okay, so let's say you divorced your wife because she, uh, I don't know, messed up the cooking. What's, are, are you guilty of, of adultery? Yeah, he said this is a sin. What if I divorce my wife because she... She's just, just so quarrelsome. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it, so I divorce her. Is that allowed by this statement? No. And then he says, and the second part, whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So we see two parts of Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. There is a teaching that you can't um, divorce a woman for the wrong reason. There's only one extreme reason that's allowed And you can't marry a divorced woman, period. The bottom line is that there's fundamental change, some kind of fundamental change that occurs in the marriage that only death takes it away. Um, And in this passage, it's funny how how many times 1 Corinthians 7 is used to to confuse divorce and remarriage. But this whole passage, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, you have a clear statement. And at the very last verse... In 1 Corinthians 7, you got a clear statement. And the sandwich, this uh, book ends, everything is in between. So 10 and 11 says, A wife is not to divorce from her husband or depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. The last verse in, in 1 Corinthians 7 says, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. And so we see this, that 
this this idea of these these two are are very important as they come together there. And then another time that we get into the distinguishing point is in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, verse 3, uh, we have the Pharisees coming to Jesus, and we see the same. We see the Pharisees saying, when can you ever get a divorce? For any reason whatsoever? And he answered them in verse 4. Have you not read, this is Matthew 19, verse 4, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The amazing thing with this is that the, the, um, the Pharisees are saying, okay, so for this reason or for that reason, the different Pharisees had different reasons why they, they interpreted uh, Deuteronomy 24, of why you could separate it and what was the, the, the reason there. How can you separate them? He says, do you get it? They're no longer two people. And so your, your whole reasoning here is off. And so he takes them and, he, and they say, well, verse 7, why then did Moses give him a, a certificate of divorce to put him away? So what, you know, what do you do about Deuteronomy 24? And verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, the way that's worded in Matthew 19 could be worded that the exception clause is into the remarriage itself. It seems the, the, the reading through it all, though, would give it, the, it in harmony with the Matthew 5, implies that there's two things here. You can only send your wife away for remarriage, I mean, excuse me, for adultery, and marrying anyone else is considered adultery. One of the reasons why? The shock of the apostles right after that. His, his disciples said to him, well, if this is the case with such a man, isn't it better not to marry? <laughs> and this brings us back to 1 Corinthians 7. So the apostles hearing this say, that's really strong. If that's the case, and you could lose your salvation you could, with this kind of a thing, isn't it better not to get married at all? It's 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 very instructive to see that Jesus didn't say oh, no 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 you you guys no you guys are missing it all you need to do is do this and the other and all that he goes on and says yeah all but he said to them all cannot accept this saying but only those whom it has been given for there are eunuchs who have been born from their mother's womb and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake he who is able to accept it let him accept it. Amazingly, we don't get this very many times, but in Mark, we have uh, the same exact scene. And in Mark chapter 10, we get a little conversation between the disciples and Jesus. And we have this little thing in Mark chapter 10, verse 12. In Mark 10, in the same scene, um, he says this in verse 10, Mark 10, 10. And in the house, his disciples ask him again of the same matter. And he said to them, and here he summarizes it. Whoever shall put away his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And 
If a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. Notice in this Mark passage, which is very important, it's both for the men and the women. Some people say, well, it's because of the ownership of women and that kind of thing. No, 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 no. He makes it both the men and the women. Finally, in Luke, gives a very summary verse in Luke 16, um, verse 17. As it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one little of the law, one tittle of the law to fail, whoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. And so this is a, a very strong teaching that Paul is getting. So Paul's saying, not I, but the Lord. These are teachings I didn't come up with. These are the teachings from Jesus. What are those teachings? That divorcing a spouse for any reason except for fornication is to be guilty of causing your spouse to commit adultery. Matthew 5, 32, 19, and 9. Number two, divorcing a wife and marrying another is adultery. Mark 10, 11. And marrying someone who was divorced is adultery. Luke 16, 18. These are hard teachings. These are hard teachings. A wife is not to depart from her husband, verse 10. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Let her remain unmarried. This is a strong thing that he says. And then we get into verse 12. And I I put in my notes here the hard cases. (laughs) The, through over 20 years, as I've been in churches that have tried to, to be faithful to these teachings, it has been very, very hard. These aren't just doctrines. These are hurting people. These are, these are brokenness. This is, this is very hard stuff. And, Usually the cases when you start hearing they get really painful and they and you hear the stories and your heart is breaking and you're like wow and and to 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 sanitize it in some sort of a theological orthodoxy and patting ourselves on on the back for being Pharisees is cruel absolutely cruel Paul I see verse 12 he's probably dealing with some particular situation in Corinth but he gets really um, down to maybe a difficult case. And he mentions some hard situations. Look at this. Let's look at verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. So he said, now I'm going to start giving some applications on Jesus' teaching. I didn't get this directly from the teachings of Jesus. This is me. At the very last verse, he says, but I do have the Holy Spirit. If any brother has a wife who does not believe. So here's a hard case. In in, in Lesbos, I have several of the refugees coming to Christ. They said, well, I've got a wife in Iran, and I mean, surely, I mean, she's a Muslim. Surely you don't expect me to keep with her, do you? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And I read him this passage. If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, I think that's even harder, right? If he is willing to live with her, Let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, 
And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such a case. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? This is hard stuff. I can't think of how many marriages I've, I've given counseling to where you're hearing the gut-wrenching stuff and you're like, yeah, I, I the, the bottom line is you, you want to try to get in there and just bring this love and, and bring this, this, this peace to it all. But as we look at this, we see something that God wants us to understand is that he is there working through these very hard situations. These very hard situations. Now what it means for the sanctifying of your of your child, I looked at both the ancient and the and the new commentaries, even you know, Chrysostom and the ones who speak on this, it's still pretty vague. But there's some holy presence that you praying wives that has a, a husband who's not a believer, there's a sanctifying presence over that child becoming a child of God one day. And likewise for the wife and, and, and who has an unbelieving wife and has a husband there, that there's a sanctifying presence. Otherwise, it would just be uncleanliness. And he calls him to that. Now, here's the catch in reading 1 Corinthians 7. Many people, many ministries today, um, try to look at this and say you're not under bondage and say that the person now is free then to be remarried. And this is really a not right way to look at this. And it helps us again to understand the two parts of Jesus' teaching on divorce free marriage. You are guilty of adultery if I divorce my wife, according to Matthew chapter 5, for a wrong reason. So now he's saying, but well, they're leaving though. I don't have to chase after them. I don't have to pursue them that if they don't want to live with me, I can't make them. And for that, he's giving us peace. Um, that you're not going to be held guilty for that, unless, of course, there's something you did. So this is something that he's getting to. But to, to use this as a reason to remarriage is making nonsense out of the whole passage. Beginning of, the, of, the, of this whole section, remember, he says, a woman, if she does depart, she is to remain single or be reconciled. The last verse in chapter 7 says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he shall live. Everything else in the middle is between these two. And you've got to keep that in mind as we read through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. John Piper has a wonderful uh, teaching on this particular section. And he says this, dealing with this, this passage. John Piper speaking says, Some have taken Paul's words, quote, not under bondage, or especially the NIV translation, is not bound in such circumstances, to imply that because the spouse is left home, or rather deserted, that the marriage bond is now broken and the person is free to marry again. However, the overall context of this chapter does not support this view. Considering what Paul said a few verses before this and even a few verses after this verses, where Paul specifically addresses the permanence of the marriage bond, the view that the divorcee is free to marry is particularly misleading. 
it would seem extremely unlikely that in verse 11, when the context most possibly even being dealing with fornication, and Paul says, but if she departs, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, that he would now give the complete opposite counsel on the matter and say that you don't have to remain unmarried and you don't need to worry about reconciliation. Exclamation point. The clear language of what to do after divorce has already been established. Remain unmarried or be reconciled. Why stretch this passage to say something that it simply does not say? I think it's well said. Also, the different translations of this is not bound is a different Greek word than is bound to a husband. And it's a different exegesis that you can look through that chapter as well. Powerful passage. Dealing with the raw stuff of hard situations. You want to say to that, that Muslim who's converted to Christ and has got a wife in, in, in Iran, and you want to say, yeah, you get a fresh start now. Let's just, yeah, amen, let's just go. But to deal with this kind of messiness is hard. I really prayed and wrestled over this dealing with Greece because... You see, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' teachings have huge consequences. And ignoring his teachings have huge consequences. And when we, in our expediency, think, I'm going to not do the Jesus teaching here because of this and that situation, we don't see the generational problems that occur from this. Jesus has the cure for humanity. And I grant you, I hate some of the, the situations that come to us and some of the situations, and I cry over them. I was one time writing a book about uh, divorce and remarriage, and, and as I was writing it, I said, Dean, how can you write a book that you know will do nothing but cause pain? Because I believe that the ultimate result of this is grace. And, and God giving the ability, and he has the plan for humanity. I started pondering, even in the refugee crisis, if I was to go weak on the marriage bond, and now an impoverished people with all the very likely living in ghettos and Greece and, and Germany and this type of a thing, and now they're loose on marriage, the ramifications of being low view of marriage, what that could do to the entire society of the, of the future generations of the Muslims that are, that are coming to Christ. Paul says we have to persevere. The option is singleness. And he says that we shouldn't be constrained into that. Um, all right, now, he gets into a little more detail here. Live like you're called. How can you deal with that? How can you deal with that? Remember, Jesus said, yeah, some people are made eunuchs from their mother's womb. Some are made by men. Sometimes it's not a pretty situation. But to such it is given. God's grace is in there. In these messy, broken, terrible situations, God is there. In verse 17, back to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, he goes on, he says this. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not be uncircumcised. People were actually trying some surgeries to be uncircumcised in those days. 
Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you could be made free, rather use it, if you can. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is in the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become a slave of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state to which he was called. Chrysostom goes into this detail about Joseph as a slave. He says, in that situation with Potiphar's wife, Chrysostom says, who's the slave? Potiphar living in, 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 I mean, excuse me, Joseph living in Potiphar's house and his wife trying to seduce him with the seductions and that type of a thing, he was free. He lived by a standard that was not under bondage, was not under, could not be constrained by this woman to take him down. Her, however, having all the freedom, Chrysostom goes on to say, was under bondage of sin. Paul saying, be free. Nothing can change us. Nothing. No, no passions, no laws. You can live in Christ no matter your, your different calling. And this is right after that difficult teaching. Do you get it? Sometimes it is hard. And I don't want to try to butter it up or play it up or, or you know, ignore that. It's hard. It's hard. But he's letting us know God will be with us through these, these very difficult times. Verse 25, new section. Very clear marker. Look at it now. Now concerning virgins. So here are the singles in the church and those that are betrothed. And it's very important that we realize now he's talking about it and it's a very clear distinguishing mark. Now concerning virgins um, in his way that he says this. So during all this kind of um, uh, talk about marriage and talk about the importance of marriage, what about the single life? What does he do about the single life? And this is the last section that will be done. But it's important. The whole context here is radical Christians. He's touched this at the beginning. Now he's coming back here now. To the Jews of that day, uh, the Jewish Talmud says this. This is how strong it is about the need to get married. This is from the Jewish Talmud. The man who was not married at 20 is living in sin. <laughs> and also it says, any man who has no wife is no proper man. For it is said, male and female created he them and called their name Adam. <laughs> this is from the Talmud. This would have been some of the, the, the spirit of the, of the Pharisaical teachings at the time. Jesus, although certainly not taking away marriage, and Paul absolutely not, still did not have it at that level. We can live without marriage and marriage affection, but we cannot live without love and family and closeness and affection. Jesus said, um, remember, um, and there was a great multitude, Luke 14.25, that went after him. And he turned and said to them, If any man come to me and hate not his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And then he lets us know when the, when the Sadducees were asking him in Mark 12.25, For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor give it in marriage, but are as angels as in heaven. 
So the idea in heaven, the heavenly state, it's not going to be marriage. So marriage is incredible. It's awesome. I've had 34 years of amazing, incredible, and more so, amazing years with the most wonderful woman on earth. And marriage has been incredible. But it's not the ultimate, he says to him, that he says to us. Now, it needs to be said, 1 Timothy 4.3 calls it a heresy, those churches who, do, who forbid to marry and commanding to abstain from certain meats, which God said that we should receive. But this is still something we need to know, because when we look at some of Jesus' teaching, it actually seems cruel. How could you ever ask that of anybody? And I think that has a little bit of just the way that we see uh, this whole situation. So verse 25, he gets now concerning virgins. Verse 25, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. Interesting, I have no commandment from the Lord. None of the Jesus teachings I have to directly talk to you about your betrothals and your and the, and the and remaining celibate. Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I love that. I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loose. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if the virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. This, these passages and the passages that in this chapter do get a little ambiguous about who's who is talking. And I did a lot of trying to dig in to both the ancient commentaries and the newest ones and, and to see exactly what's being talked about here. Um, particularly the ones that follow the last verses of the, of this, of the chapter. Um, in this passage, it would seem uh, that the commentaries that I've really appreciated is this idea that you had a betrothal and that there were people in, in the church that were betrothed to be married, but then are waiting and they're not married yet. But he says this idea of even if you are married, I don't want you to go and be loose. Uh, and if you're loose, then I then you should be content and not have to go get married. So he keeps kind of subtly lifting up the single life, and he does this in a in a very powerful way. Um, and I think that's good for us as radical churches, kingdom churches, Anabaptist churches. We have a really really high view of marriage, and I love that. But the singles need to feel they are complete in Christ. I loved. Uh, Paul Washer uh, sermon that I listened to years ago, and it was on courtship. And he was really nailing everybody for saying, you want to get married, you want to find someone who completes you. <laughs> and his Paul Washer format, you know, he's, he's being very strong against this. He says, we are complete in Christ. And he said that if you find a woman who you marry because she completes you, well, what happens when she stops fulfilling that purpose? What happens if she starts to fall into sin or gets sick or something? Then suddenly you're incomplete and you begin to be resentful of your wife. We should come together in marriage to make us holy and not to make us happy. We are complete in Christ and we should not try to just expect our wives and our spouses to make us complete. Nevertheless, the marriage is a beautiful thing. But I'm just trying to, to, to give the credence of what Paul is, is lifting up the single life here for what he has to say. So verse 29. 
finishing up. A few more verses here. But this I say, brethren, that the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. So in other words, it's not just about this happy American dream. And if you've ever read uh, David Platt's book, Radical, what's the symbol on the, the cover of that book, those who've read it? A house, and what's the house doing? It's upside down. And he says, he's, he's, his point on that, he says, I'm trying to, to challenge the American dream. That we should be, as a, as a family, living our family radically for Jesus Christ. And not just trying to live the American dream. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 38, for as, in days, for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And he gave this comparison to the end times. And so, so many times, you know, we, if we're just going to live our life and glibly, there's nothing wrong with eating and drinking, nothing wrong with getting, a mar- getting married, but there's more to it with that. And so he gives us this, this caution, this, this life. Um, it's interesting too and you have to be real careful that this doesn't get wrong but when you read through the the early church several people took this passage and tried to by agreeing consecrated themselves we're just going to live for Jesus completely and even though we're married we're going to live in two different rooms or we're going to do different things and and not have this relationship together. And you see this in some of the early church um, and trying to just completely consecrate themselves. Now, you've got to be really careful with that. that that's uh, because the beginning of this chapter, it's a sin to do that unless there's an agreement from both partners. But just this radical living out for Jesus Christ um, seems to be implied a little bit in this language that he's talking about here in verse 32 through 34. All right. 35, and this I say to your own prophet, not that I should put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you will serve the Lord without distraction, without distraction. Um, I'm sorry, verse 32, verse 32, but I want it to be, but I want you to be without care. Sorry, I missed this verse back to 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not to put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Did you get that verse? He's saying there's just a deeper level of of consecration unto God. Now, let me say this. He says that if we're married, it should look different. And I I will say this as I look through my kind of life of a radical Christian. There's been times that I feel like my wife and maybe my children, sorry guys, are like in that box that I'm shaking and it's a lot of broken pieces. There is a different calling 
that the radical single life is able to do that he says a married life does look different. And I, I'll just say that, not to put a leash on you, but that you can do what is proper, the Lord without distraction. But there's something to that as I look back over my life that um, maybe could gain from a little bit of this understanding that Paul is bringing here about the, the freedom that a single life has compared to the married life. And I'll just throw that out. Y'all can question me out on that at the end of this. Um, so let's look, at, let's look at these other passages then. All right, coming towards the end. Verse 36. But if any man thinks he... This is one of the most ambiguous passages and, and, uh, uh, and looking up in different ways. Verse 36. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she's past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well, so or virginity, does well, so, so then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Boy, when I looked this up, and even what we were talking about last night, Sarah, I went to look at a, different, a few dissertations on this, and there's a lot of both ancient and modern uh, textual differences and different disagreements on who is he talking about here? Uh, is it I have a daughter that I'm not allowing to get married or not? Is it I'm in a betrothal that um, I'm deciding whether or not to get married or not? Or even is it one of these little um, sanctified marriages that people are living separate um, in, a, in a state um, and people have argued in these different things? Um, interesting, by the time you get to the Council of Elvira in around 300, they're literally making church laws that you can't have, that the ministry can't have one of these wives that you're living in a holy estate with. They, they had to stop people from doing that. So, I don't know. When I read the most obvious context for me, and you can disagree, and many people have different views, I really appreciate the, uh, the Heth and Wenham's, uh Jesus and Divorce um, passage on this, and it seems to follow the natural conclusions of the rest of the thing, is if you're struggling as a single with your betrothal, that you betrothed as a young person to marry this person, and you had this betrothal, should you go through this marriage or should I not? He's giving us freedom to go one way or the other. That's how I come out on this as the most uh, the most harmonious way to look at this. Um, but I, it's it's certainly um, up to different dis, uh, different interpretations on that. I get I, I'm troubled with the idea if it's a, a husband or father not allowing his daughter to go get married because particularly it's it's he's acting unbecomingly towards his daughter. It, it also can mean though one of the commentators said if it's it's if it's giving him disgrace. Whatever the case there. I think the whole context here flows from the idea of a single person making a commitment to singleness that it's okay to get married, but it's also okay, and a really great idea, according to Paul, to stay single. All right, last two verses. And he repeats the statement. A wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But, but she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I have the Spirit of God. 
So it's a powerful, powerful chapter. Um, looking over the whole thing, church, I think we get a lot of pastoral depth out of this. We get into the challenge of touching women and discretion and pornography. We get into our hearts and our, and our motives. We get touched in this, the, the, the feeling about how we are to love our wives and our wives should love us. We get some really actual, incredibly strong language that our bodies aren't even our own, but it belongs to your spouse. We get this incredible teaching about repeating of Jesus' statement, and, we, and it's such an important thing for our interpretation of Jesus' divorce and remarriage laws. We get it in here in 1 Corinthians 7, and that's very important. We get a Christocentric interpretation of Scripture as a hermeneutic out of this, and then we get this long passages about just struggling over a single person who wants to live singly and and dedicated to God, but then Paul making it clear, that's great, that's the best way, but you are allowed to get married. Rich, rich, rich stuff. So I ask us all to just allow God to allow that to speak to us and to let 1 Corinthians chapter 7 sanctify our lives, our holiness, our purity, and our marriage. Um, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these, these words, and I pray, God, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to live them out. And I ask you, God, to be glorified in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray.